Welcome back to the Magic Story Podcast. I'm your host, Harless. And I'm your other host, Natalie. This is the podcast where we recap the fiction story behind Magic the Gathering and add our own bits of flavor text along the way. All the stories we go over, you can read for yourself right now at mtgstory.com. Now, we are currently in season six, which follows the story of the Lost Caverns of Ixalan. All of the fiction stories for the Lost Caverns of Ixalan are out right now, and I can't wait to dive into it. Today's episode is episode three of the main story, and it's written by Valerie Valdez. Join us as we head into the multiverse. So if you recall from our previous episodes, we're actually following three different stories kind of happening in tandem. One story follows the Sun Empire, where we have characters like Watley, Sahili, Quintorius, and Waita. And they had actually solved this sort of riddle in order to open up an old door in the temp- in a temple of Orozka that actually led to the underground caverns beneath Ixalan. And last episode, we had followed Watley, Quint, and Waita. It was mainly told from Waita's perspective as they kind of meander through these dark caverns and they are running across all sorts of signs of struggle and death from a really, really long time ago. And they come across puzzle after puzzle as they go deeper and deeper into the underground of Ixalan. And they're going through this ancient underground city. It's just massive, deep, deep underground. And Quint runs across this poncho, this really old uh, material. And Knowing the incantation to be able to bring back ghosts or figures from the past, he does this and he actually brings back the poncho's owner, Abuelo. And Abuelo appears in ghost form and says that he has to warn Otaklan of the mycoid infestation. And we didn't really get an explanation as to what that was. We just knew that it was it didn't sound good. Um, And so that's where we left off with the Sun Empire. But while this is all happening, we're also following another story that follows our siren friend Malcolm and his goblin companion Breaches. And Malcolm ended up having to fight off zombie dinosaurs last episode. They were going down, 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 very, very deep into into the tunnels of downtown. And they ran across all of this weird fungus stuff. And it turns out that it was all like it it brought back dinosaurs to life. And he had to fight a whole pack of these off. And actually, some of his comrades got injured in this fight and it had like weird black marks in their skin. And Malcolm, we left off with Malcolm over. It just doesn't seem right. Something seems odd about his injured companions. And then the third story follows the Dusk Legion vampires, where we're behind Amalia's eyes, who is a young cartographer who actually has the ability to change the world as she draws on her map, which is really, really cool. So she can draw on her map and actually change the physical world with that. Um, She has like an enchanted quill. It's super awesome. Um, And last episode, they had also run across and had to solve puzzle after puzzle as they were trying to venture deeper into into the underground of Ixalan. And they are searching for their god, Aklazots. And so they're on some holy voyage and they're led by this very zealous, very uh, not a great 
guy vampire named Vito. And at the very end of last episode, they had actually gone through this lava cavern underneath and rescued Kellen, who had happened to cross through an omen path into this lava cavern and was being chased by hairless goblins. And Amalia actually saves his life with her cool map drawing power by erasing a bridge. And so we actually left off with Kellen joining up with these Dusk Legion vampires. And we were questioning whether that meant good things for Kellen or not. Now, today's episode picks up with Waita as she follows Quint, who is chasing that ghost. And here's the opening line of the story, which I just love. If someone had told Waita a few days earlier that she and a Luxodon archaeologist would be chasing a ghost through underground ruins, she would have told them to see a healer. Also, she would have asked what a Luxodon was. So Abuelo, as the ghost calls himself, is speeding away and Quint is really focused on following him, which means Waita is left to check for dangers in the rear of the group, which of course is not a great advantage. Now, eventually they turn a corner and Abuelo yells out, Titan, and then disappears in a puff of that purple-pink colored smoke. And Natalie, can you actually read for us what Waita and Quint see here? Ahead, a hulking figure loomed, easily twice her height. She might have mistaken it for a part of the fungus growing from the walls until it moved. Its head was huge, layered mushroom, like those that grew from jungle trees, while its shoulders and chest were clusters of smaller round-top morals. Jagged, chitinous spikes jutted from the backs of its massive hands and up its forearms. So, essentially a gigantic something that has been turned into a mushroom creature. And it's giant. This is not good. No, it's not. And before Waita and Quint can even process what's going on, the mushroom creature attacks them. And Waita tells Quint to get back and begins to draw the creature's attention to her. Because remember, she's a warrior. And she sends a silent prayer at this moment to one of her gods, Tilo Nai, just before the mycoid titan throws half a wall at her. So yeah, Natalie, I think you're right. This is bad news. <laughs> so Waita actually fights this mycoid titan, but her strikes, which are poised to disarm any normal person because she is a very effective warrior. Let's not forget she fought in the Phyrexian invasion not too long ago. It has little effect on this fungus creature, though. Thankfully, Watli, Inti, and Kaparakti arrive, and together they surround the creature and begin to slice it apart bit by bit. And we had we had actually seen this happen with Malcolm last episode, where mm-hmm. he was striking at those zombie raptor dinosaurs uh, and to no effect. Like, it just was not working. It, it didn't seem to feel pain. And the only way that he was able to defeat them was to chop them into bits. So it seems like they're doing the same here. Yeah, and just like that dinosaur, nothing seems to hurt the titan, which doesn't seem to even feel pain at all. So again, just like the dinosaur. And in fact, its wounds are oozing that black substance we've seen before in downtown with Malcolm. And that ooze from its wounds solidifies and then bursts into new fungal growths. And uh, is right, and it's about to get grosser, because when he spits onto one of the warriors, the black ooze that comes out of its mouth burns through the warrior's armor, and the warrior doesn't make it. So Waita turns to the warrior's side, but she realizes she's too late and ultimately turns back to the fight. She thinks she'll have to pray for the spirits of the dead later. Quint yells out, more incoming. And a dozen more of these creatures arrive to join the fight alongside the mycoid titan. These creatures are smaller, but they're actually wielding weapons this time. So this is bad news for the Sun Empire, who are now not only outnumbered, but also outflanked. And Harless, I was wondering if you could read this next section from the story. 
Of course. One of the unarmed creatures plucked a mushroom from its own body and threw it at the feet of another warrior. The mushroom glowed an eerie green, bursting into thick black mold that encased the man's boots and spread up his legs. He stumbled, and the mold surged into his mouth. Uh, yuck, uh, yuck, yuck, yuck. Uh, so gross. <laughs> no, no, I, I already don't like mushrooms. Like, mushrooms kind of give me the heebie-jeebies, <laughs> like, I'll be perfectly honest. Not as much as spiders. Like, I'm truly deathly afraid of spiders, but mushrooms are just like... I don't know. <laughs> Something doesn't feel right about them. I don't know. It's, it's a personal opinion. I've got to say, <laughs> I was eating mushrooms for lunch today. Like I had like skewers with like chicken and pineapple and peppers and mushrooms. And I was thinking about this story. <laughs> I was eating them and I was like kind of grossed out. <laughs> See, I don't like mushrooms to begin with. And then, but I love mushrooms. Yeah. So I, I powered through. That is where you and I differ, Carlos. Like, it's like, I am, I am not a big fan of mushrooms. So the oh. thought of mushroom goo, like fungal goo, black, bleh, going inside my mouth, that. I mean, let's yeah. let's be real. That that's not a normal mushroom. No, it is not like, a normal mushroom. <laughs> normal mushroom isn't gonna. It was. I hope. I don't know what mushrooms you've eaten, Natalie, but the ones that I have had have not oozed black goo into my mouth. So, Gross. <laughs> maybe check your expiration dates. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> All right. So to continue that quote, White's heart clenched with the sudden certainty that she would fall in this place, never to see the light of the threefold sun again. Then. The tides turned. So at this moment, a wave from an underground river nearby lashes out and knocks two of the creatures down. And at this point, about six or so river heralds emerge from the river and join in the fight against the mycoid creatures. And the river heralds tell them that this fight is lost and the group should just come with them to safety and just kind of abandon the fight. So quick background here. The Sun Empire and the river heralds have not gotten along recently. And Waita asks herself if she should trust them. But I love this next part because she actually says, trust had to start somewhere, might as well be here. And Waita chooses hope in this moment. And I have to admit, this moment really endeared her to me. She'd had it tough. She's seen a lot. Like I said, she's been in the Phyrexian War, but she's choosing to trust the River Heralds when she doesn't know what the outcome will be. Yeah, I completely agree. I really appreciate that about her. Like, I feel like a lot of the time we see like a battle wizened person that is just so nihilistic and so negative and that that's not why does she's still young she's still excited she still thinks there's hope in the world and I love to see that because you know when we think there's no hope that's when there truly is no hope yeah it shows a maturity now, in her because she's young let's remember she's like really like she's young she's like a teen she's like 19 yeah yeah she's like a teen yeah. and to to have that level of maturity is just impressive for, for someone of that age, I too. I agree. Yeah. Now, Quint uses this moment to magically lift. I love this. He magically lifts this gigantic ancient weapon from the ground and hits the, the mycoid titan in the head with it. <laughs> and Waita calls for him and he runs after her and toward the River Herald so that he escapes, too. And when they reach the River Herald, one of them grabs Waita's hand, murmurs an incantation while using their fingers to trace like a circle around her face. And suddenly, quote, a rainbow sheen covered Waita like she'd been encased in a bubble molded to her form. And that merfolk says, swift travels, little sister, and just shoves her into the river. Good luck. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hope you can swim. <laughs> so 
we don't unfortunately get to find out what happens to Waita just yet. We switch now to Malcolm and Breaches, who are on that elevator with their comrades who have been able to walk away from the fight alive, but they seem really off to Malcolm. And this passage is from the story. The black markings on their wounds had spread, a delicate filigree of circles and lines along any exposed skin. Worse, they had begun to glow a sickly shade of green. The pirates didn't complain of pain or discomfort, when normally they'd be grumbling and asking to rest. Instead, they alternated between foggy detachment and examining their surroundings with oddly keen interest. And Malcolm notices an alarming amount of fungal growth on the walls of the cenote, so he and Breaches use this moment to tie bandanas around their mouths and noses, and Malcolm actually thinks to himself in this very humorous off-thought that they look more like common bandits or thieves instead of pirates, and he chuckles to himself at the thought, and I chuckled too. Now, the elevator lurches when it hits a giant mushroom that's just kind of growing naturally. And Malcolm asks if it can be cut through, and one of the pirates hacks it until the elevator begins to move again. But the pirate sneezes and stumbles backwards, rubbing her eyes. She says, gross, and then it bursts like a sack of flour. And that's when another pirate thumps her on the back, and I'll quote the story here, where she had stood, a cloud of glittering green spores rose in the still air, thickening like smoke. Again, ugh. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. So not good. Yeah, this is this isn't good. Malcolm notices here that the wounds of the injured pirates are glowing the same green as the spores now in the air. And before he can figure out what the connection might mean, Two of the injured pirates attack the two uninjured ones and shove them into the spore cloud. The uninjured pirates cough, gag, and then begin to retch black fluid onto the floor. As suddenly as they'd begun gagging, the sickness stops and the affected pirates turn to face the others. Their eyes are green and glassy and black veins popped up across their face. They also hiss air out of their mouths like, quote, leaking rubber bladders, which, uh, creepy, <laughs> very creepy. The unaffected pirates draw their weapons and a fight breaks out. Breaches asks once again, big boom? But Malcolm tells him no, and the explosion would kill everyone. So Malcolm flies onto the elevator and is quickly joined by Breaches, who asks, escape? And at the sound of Breaches' question, everyone turns to Malcolm and his goblin companion. And Malcolm tells Breaches to cut the elevator lines and quickly. Now, Breaches saws at one cable with his knife while Malcolm works on the other, but the cables are thick and the infected start to climb the elevator. Finally, the lines are cut and the elevator falls deep down into the abyss. And as they climb the ropes, climb and fly for Malcolm, the siren, Malcolm wonders what terrible creature could turn pirates and dinosaurs into mindless puppets and why. So now we are back with the Dusk Legion, following Bartolome's perspective. The vampires are still tracking down Aklazots, but the terrain is less than hospitable. There's molten lava everywhere, and Bartolome starts to wonder if a god as powerful as theirs is meant to be found. And yet, the farther they go into the underworld of Ixalan, the more signs of habitation they find. Buildings carved into cliffsides and stalactites, glowing markers covered in unfamiliar glyphs, gardens of pale, leafless plants in sandy soil. They never encountered any inhabitants, but scuttling sounds and glimpses of movement suggested they weren't alone. 
And while they walk, Amalia and Kellen chat, and Bartolome can't help but compare Amalia to his own daughter. And this is Bartolome's motivation in all of this, to guard the future of his daughter, to help protect the innocent like Amalia and others like the young woman. And here we learn that Bartolome is actually a spy of Queen Miralda's, and he's been sent here specifically to discover Vito's true intentions and his loyalties. And until this expedition, he hadn't realized how heretical Vito had become and how far he had turned from the church. He's not been able to figure out who gave the lance and the general of Venerable Tarion to Vito, but it does indicate that Vito's supporters, and therefore those who oppose Queen Miralda, are more unified and also larger than Bartolome had originally thought. The Legion of Dusk enters a flat plateau that overlooks lava waterfalls and are immediately surrounded by two dozen warriors with faces like great cats and spotted fur to match. And these cat warriors bare their teeth to the vampires and wield bows as well as serrated obsidian blades and pole arms. A female cat warrior tells the vampires, you will come with us. Vito asks, who are you? And the warrior tells Vito that she is Kutzil, champion of the Malamet, and that the vampires will come with them or they will die. Bartolome tells the Malamet that they are on a holy pilgrimage and seek only safe passage. He tells them they mean no harm. And Vito doesn't seem happy that Bartolome was the one to respond, so he glares at Bartolome here. Kutzil tells the vampires that their mission is none of her concern and that their sovereign will decide the fates of these vampires. Now, Bartolome quickly advises Vito. They fought a lot already and their morale, as well as their supplies, are low. So he suggests that diplomacy may serve them well. Vito tells Kutzil that he will meet their sovereign and the Malamet warriors lead the vampires on. But Vito takes this moment to tell Bartolome not to undermine him again. And Bartolome just inclines his head in acknowledgement, but I just have to say that Vito is so problematic in his treatment of his fellow vampires. Like, no one ever told this man that you can catch more flies with honey, I guess, because he's just rude and hateful to everybody. Yeah. And like, you know, I think we said this before, but respect is not gained by telling people to respect you. And that is what Vito is doing. He's like, you better respect me, essentially, is what he's saying. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. don't undermine me. and Don't do this. Don't do that. And it's just like, buddy, that's not going to work out for you in the end. Like, you know, that's just not how you become an effective leader. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also I also want to pause here and just call out that we are meeting a new type of creature, the Malamet, who are the jaguar folk. Yes. Like this is this is so cool. They are cat folk, but jaguars. And, and it's just and they have been they they live underground like they live beneath Ixalan, like we just discovered we like we discovered this alongside the vampires. And I was just like immediately so intrigued by the Melamet. And I was like, ooh, like this is this is a race that exists purely under Ixalan in the in the underground of Ixalan. And we have never met them before. And I was just very intrigued by this by this new type of creature. Yeah, I completely agree. Like it it's so cool to see them. I mean, who doesn't love a good cat? We do on this podcast, as you guys all know. But um, it's also really cool because it tells us how deep they are into the core of the plane. Because, like you said, they've never been like they live underground. They've never been bothered before. They've never been discovered before. I mean, by anybody who was able to make it out anyway. And so 
it's just so cool. Like, and and I love that they're Jaguar people. Like, I think that's so flavorful, so unique to Ixalan and really just it's really it's really cool. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. just cool, guys. Yeah. I, know. <laughs> I like the Melamed. I, I immediately like the Melamed. Um, and the vampires from here. Sorry, back to the story. <laughs> the vampires from here, they follow Kutsil and the other Melamed into their city and they see that there is an entire culture that exists in the caves and tunnels of the underworld of Ixalan, which had never been traveled to or made contact with the surface like ever. Kutsil ever. ever like that's this is like the first of outside contact that they're having. Um, and so Kutsil tells them that they are the first strangers to see Bancoj, their city, since the time of the Oltec. Bartolome looks up to see an entire city that's built into a cluster of stalactites, so large they might have been inverted mountains. The vampires are split into two groups before they are marched across a large stone bridge to the largest of the stalactites. Instead of being carved into buildings, the stalactite is covered in glowing glyphs. And Harless, can you read this passage from the story? Yeah. And before I do, I just want to remind us all that back in science class, we all learned that stalactites are the ones that hang from the ceiling. They hold tight to the ceiling and stalagmites are the ones that grow mighty from the ground. So these are hanging from the ceiling. So I thought that was really cool. So imagine that when you when you hear this passage. Yeah. Who knew that my geology classes would come in handy <laughs> on the podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> The interior of the stalactite was filled by an enormous pyramid carved from the rock, hundreds of steps leading to a small room at its peak. A strange susurration echoed in the cavernous space, its source invisible. Thankfully, they were not forced to ascend the staircase and were instead led inside the pyramid to a long room flanked by carved pillars, between which Malamet crouched on woven mats. Their elaborate headdresses and collars suggested some form of nobility or priesthood, and they all stared at the Legion members as they passed, some showing fangs that made vampiric teeth look tame by comparison. And at the end of the room is a large armored Malamet, presumably the sovereign Okinek Ahau. The vampires tell the sovereign that they are only passing through, and they're just looking for their god. And the sovereign responds, there are no gods here but me, which, oh my gosh, what a good one-liner. Yeah. Like, the first thing you say, there are no gods here but me. That's pretty, pretty cool. Oh, this, the thing <laughs> about Sovereign Okanek Ahau is that they are, they are, they have so many great one-liners. Like, they have, like, the perfect statements, like, every single time. So anyway, <laughs> I love that about the Sovereign. <laughs> so the Sovereign calls forth Pock the myth weaver, who is going to use his magic to create an image that will let them know if the vampires are telling the truth or if they mean harm. It does not go well for the vampires. After a vision of a snarling face with fangs, Baird snaps at Polk. He says, one invasion begets another. We will not allow it. The trespassers are sentenced to be given to the sand. Some of the vampires draw their weapons, but they are outnumbered by the Melamet in the city. I'll read this next part directly from the story. Glowing glyphs seared the air, mimicking the spots on the Melamet's fur. The magic lashed out and wrapped around the Legion members like chains, forcing them to kneel. Vito struggled, but his lance was pressed uselessly against his chest. He glared at Bartolome so venomously that if looks could have killed, Bartolome would already be dead. This isn't fair, Kellen shouted from the back of their group. We haven't done anything. 
Sovereign Okanek Ahau bared his fangs. The fire does not concern itself with bareness. It simply burns. One by one, the vampires are taken to a large fountain with a jaguar head at the top. And instead of water flowing from the fountain, it pours sand. And Vito says that his god will grant him strength and vengeance and that his gods will be done. But they're all thrown into the basin of sand, some screaming and some fighting. Vito, then Clavileño go into the basin. Amalia and Kellen are thrown into the sand. But rather than fighting it, Amalia tells Kellen to hold his breath. Now, Bartolome overhears this and follows her lead as he is unceremoniously tossed into the sand. His only consolation, the thought that at least now, Vito can do no more harm in Torrezon. So now we switch back to Baita's point of view as she tumbles through the river she'd been pushed into. She can breathe thanks to the merfolk spell, but she has no control over where she goes as a strong current pulls her along. Eventually, she bursts into open water and kicks her way to the surface. She swims towards shore, happy to find Quint there. Quint is sitting up staring at their surroundings in awe, and this is what he sees. A massive stone city rose from an underground ocean, fresh water, not salt, and extended down into the depths even farther, stepped in a manner like temples to the threefold sun. Bright lamps burned above low buildings, while long strings of bioluminescent baubles and baskets holding firebugs lit the visible streetways and alleys. Everywhere she looked, river heralds walked or swam or rested, watching the newcomers warily and talking among themselves. Watley is also here, and she immediately points out that there are thousands of heralds here. And one of the merfolk tells her that this is the greatest assembly of merfolk Ixalan has ever seen, and that the reason they're here is to await the opening of the final gate to the source. Watley asks if this could be Matalantli, the door that leads to the birthplace of humankind the home of the gods. And upon hearing this, Quint wonders if the coin empire had made it this far or if they remained closer to the surface. And he muses out loud that there are potentially historically significant artifacts that might be lurking in ancient cupboards here. And Waita asks what he would do with those artifacts if he found them. And Quint tells her that his plan would be to set up a proper excavation site so that everything is treated as carefully as possible and then he would take some back to Arazka to set up a museum. And Waita doesn't understand, so Quint tells her that it's a way of making sure the stories of the past aren't forgotten. And I'll read this very important part from the story. Waita's frown deepened. But it is not your story. Quint's ears flared slightly. Well, no, I would just be the one telling it. Why you? Waita pressed. You are not from Ixalan. You are not of the Sun Empire or the River Heralds. You shouldn't be telling our stories for us. So Quint is learning a pretty valuable lesson here about discovering the history of other civilizations. Absolutely. In Strixhaven, Quintorius discovered a lost Loxodon civilization and was able to bring to light what life was like there to others. He was able to record the history that happened there. And he starts to do that here. But ultimately, Waita and Watley are trying to inform Quint that he ultimately should not be the one to make inferences about this culture, which is not his own. Watley can tell Waita is still upset after this conversation, so she says, Not everyone understands the power of words, the control it can give others. And then she recites a poem. She says, When my bones sleep in the earth, 
who will share memories of me? Friends may raise monuments, while enemies profane my grave. When they too have passed on, what will their children remember? Sad to think of how so much is lost, Waita murmured, looking up at the strange door atop the pyramid in the distance. Watley squeezed Waita's shoulder companionably. And yet such joy when something lost is found, and when what is found is shared. Waita thinks, perhaps it was best if some things remained buried, depending on what people intended to do with them. Perhaps some monuments deserve to be brought down. She hoped whatever was behind that mysterious golden door to the so-called home of the gods was a blessing and not a curse. And then we switch perspectives again to Malcolm, who was catching his breath with breaches in a tunnel. Malcolm has concluded that the disappearances of downtown are almost certainly related to the mold and fungus, but he doesn't really quite understand how it all works. The pair is assessing what they've lost so far. They lost their supplies at the bottom of the elevator shaft. None of the eight people they brought with them survived. And Malcolm's head is pounding from using too much magic to fight and get away. All dead. No gold. Breaches buttered morosely. Too true, Malcolm agreed. Malcolm wonders if they should turn back, but ultimately there's too much at stake to not find out what's going on. Malcolm doesn't want to abandon any survivors from downtown or his Sunray Bay squad to be left there without help. Downtown would also remain empty and recruiting new miners would be difficult. And no mining means no money for the Brazen Coalition, which would surely fracture back into feuding fleets if the fragile company collapsed. And so these are all reasons that Malcolm is thinking through as he's debating whether whether he should turn back or go on. And Malcolm asks Breaches what he thinks. And Breaches just says, no mine, no gold. Now they go back and forth until Malcolm is nearly convinced to leave. But then a faint glow catches his attention and he walks toward the glow and sees this. Fungus climbed the wall, growing at an impossible speed. Black tendrils formed networks of circles that bloomed into various mushrooms. Some small and feathery, others stepped like stairs, still others rigid like coral. The effect was chaotic and eerily beautiful even as it turned his stomach. Some of the tendrils moved like ink on a page. As Malcolm watched, he realized the fungus was forming words, too dark to make out. Slowly, those words began to give off the same sickly green glow that had overtaken his lost people. Safe, the first word read. Then, down. Malcolm doesn't know if this is a truce or a trap, but he does know that this thing is sentient. And if that's the case, then maybe, just maybe, he has a chance of reasoning with it to free any survivors from downtown that may be left. Hope was the most dangerous weapon of all, and Malcolm felt it slide between his ribs to his heart, sharp as a blade. So now we are back with Amalia as she falls into the sand from the jaguar fountain. She is holding her breath and squeezing her eyes shut, but she wonders if she will spend eternity trapped in the sand, unable to die or drink life-giving blood. And that's when she gets another vision. The mysterious door round and covered in glyphs, clearer than before. It was set into the stone of a cavern wall, its coppery surface tinged with green corrosion. A sky filled with faintly purple-tinged clouds, only beyond the sky was... ground? As if someone held a vast map somewhere above her, painted with all of the colors of the land it was meant to represent. 
greens and browns and blues and snowy white. A sphere burning brightly as the sun. Was it the sun? It couldn't be. Strange metal scraps floated around it, reminding Amalia of broken plate armor. More pieces trailed behind like debris from a shipwreck, glowing purple-pink. Come to me. The pressure of the sand around Amalia begins to ease, and she finds herself falling into water. It's fresh water, and she and Kellen both kick their way to the surface and then to the shore. She's not sure if this is simply luck or the work of Aklazots, but before she can think about it too hard, they are surrounded by merfolk. The merfolk tell the Legion of Dusk not to provoke them, but to come quietly or they will be subdued by force. Vito snarls and Bartolome feels a sense of dread. Surely they're not going to try to fight merfolk in their natural element. Like, don't fight a river herald in a river, right? Like, that seems silly. But Kellen, typical jovial Kellen, tells Amalia that he can't believe this is his third time being ambushed in one day. (laughs) And she snorts at him and tells him not to make it a habit. But Kellen just grins and playfully splashes her as they and the other vampires are led to the shore to await whatever lies ahead. And that is how we end the episode. Oh, Kellen. (laughs) I can't believe this was the third time in one day that I've been captured. That's such a Kellen thing. Golly gee. Oh, golly gee. Like, that's such a Kellen thing. (laughs) That's so cute. There are so many cliffhangers. There are so many cliffhangers in this episode. So many cliffhangers. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this episode is that we find out Bartolome is a spy. So maybe he's an ally and he's a good guy after all, right? Like maybe he is a hope that they have against Vito because he kind of seems to see through Vito and his hierophantic ways. Yeah, I think uh, Bartolome has a moral compass that Vito just does not have. And um, I I think... Vito's whole compass is me, 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 I want the glory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that is going to come to a head at some point, right? Like, I I don't think Bartolome and Vito are on the same side at all. No. And I also find it really worrisome that Amalia is still having these visions because despite getting captured multiple times and being taken to, like, like off course, essentially, right? The vampires, based on the fact that her visions are clearer and louder, they it seems like the vampires are getting closer to Aklazots. And yeah. that is not going to be That's concerning. Thing. It's concerning. Like, I, I am very nervous for what this means. I don't think this is good for, for anybody involved. The only person it serves is Vito, <laughs> as we had said. I'll say it again. If a god has been imprisoned, maybe it's for a reason. Yeah. And, and I, I guess I guess we're just going to have to find out. I have so many questions. I I don't know whether Malcolm is being led into a trap. Like, I, I can't help but think he is. My vote is trap. Yeah. My vote is trap. my vote is trap. I think the mycoid is sentient and it's communicating to him somehow. And it's leading them. It's leading him into a trap. One of the most significant parts that I think that happened in this episode is the the discussion that Quint had with Watley and Waita about being truly understanding what it means to be respectful of another person's history of a, of a person of a, of a culture that is not your own and their history and, and being respectful of that. And, and that he is not the person to tell this story. I thought that was so incredibly powerful and such an important lesson for someone like Quint to learn. Um, I really, I really appreciated that that piece of this episode as well. Yeah, it's really interesting because when you think about it, if like Quint is here picking up pieces of history, 
But when you're picking up pieces of history, they're just that. They're pieces. It's not the whole story. And that really usually means that you have to make some interpretations on your own. You have to like make assumptions. And if you don't intimately know the culture and how it is now and how it used to be 50 years ago and how it was 100 years ago and how it was 200 years ago and how it could have been 300 years ago, then how can you possibly make the correct assumptions? Right. And so I just think it's extremely important for Quint to learn this lesson. Like, it's not bad that he's interested. It's not bad that he wants to help. He just can't be the one to lead the, exactly. the charge. It, it yeah. doesn't need to be his voice yeah. that is being heard. As always, you can find this story and the rest of the story of The Lost Caverns of Ixalan at mtgstory.com right now. Go check those out. They are so fun to read. And we have audiobook versions if you would prefer the story to be read aloud to you. Yes. And those audiobooks are actually uh, primarily recorded by native Spanish-speaking folk who uh, work with us at Wizards of the Coast. So we're so excited for you to listen to those. We'll see you next week. But until then, have have a magical magical day. day.